This is Southern Discomfort. The federal response to the deadly coronavirus pandemic under President Trump has been a public health disaster, with more than 230,000 Americans dead and no clear end in sight. In sharp contrast, President-elect Joe Biden has pledged to mount a serious response against the pandemic. Biden recently announced a panel of healthcare experts to begin to counter a surge of COVID-19 hospitalizations throughout the country. On the matter of health reform, however, the president-elect has offered measures that would merely bolster and even expand the same private health insurance system that has prompted physicians and other frontline healthcare workers to feel like they are fighting COVID-19 with one hand tied behind their backs. Biden ran on returning the country to normalcy, but there was nothing normal about the American healthcare system before the pandemic. The truth is, our dysfunctional medical system remains an outlier among the rest of the so-called developed world. The United States produces some of the worst health outcomes in the industrialized world and devours an ever-increasing share of our economy, with healthcare spending accounting for an astounding 17.9% of the GDP, with nothing to show for it. As many as 250,000 Americans die each year from medical errors. That's more than the amount of people who have died from COVID-19. Is that the kind of return to normalcy that Americans want, need, or deserve? The answer, of course, is no. Poll after poll has shown that Americans want a universal, single-payer healthcare system that is focused on meeting human needs and not the needs of investors. Medical care under a single-payer system, usually referred to as Medicare for All, would be universal, meaning everyone in the United States, including undocumented immigrants, would have equal access to treatment. It would be free at the point of care since there would be no premiums and no cost sharing, and unlike our current Medicare program for seniors, vision, dental, and long-term care services would be covered too. Medicare for All isn't a silver bullet, but it will go a long way in lifting people out of poverty. It won't raise wages directly, but it will embolden workers to join together to demand better pay and improved working conditions as they will no longer fear losing their health coverage. Single-payer is a reform, but it has radical implications. The right to healthcare is relevant to every person and has the potential to empower other human rights struggles. There are a few parts of the country that would benefit from Medicare for All more than the South. Health outcomes in Southern states continue to lag behind the rest of the country. Infant mortality rates in the region remain the highest in the nation, particularly within communities of color while southern states account for more than half of new HIV diagnoses. Rural hospitals across the South are closing at an alarming rate compared to the rest of the nation, leaving patients to worry about receiving even life-saving medical treatment. To make matters worse, the majority of states in the South refuse to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, leaving thousands of people without access to health care. The coronavirus pandemic has provided us with an opportunity to make sweeping changes to our social welfare system. But they are destined to fail without the support of people living in the South. Private health insurers, pharmaceutical companies, and banks, which have ensnared millions of Americans indebted by medical expenses, stand to lose too much 
if America moves to a single-payer system. They have, and will continue to fight tooth and nail to keep the money flowing for as long as they can. Joining me now to talk about the ways that the South is particularly unprepared to withstand the coronavirus pandemic, and how Southerners can and must be at the forefront of the Medicare for All movement, is Rita Valenti. For the last 40 years, Valenti has been on the front lines of the fight for health equity, first as a nurse, and later as a fierce advocate for single-payer as a board member of Healthcare Now. She spoke to me from her home in Atlanta, Georgia. Rita, you've been a nurse for 40 years. Have you practiced the entire time in the South? Yeah, all of it. Let's see, I was living in Birmingham and went to nursing school in Birmingham and then finished up here in Atlanta and um, worked for a few years at DeKalb and then worked at Grady, uh, both in, well, in trauma at the mothership, the big house, as we call it. And then later, I guess about the last 18 years of my uh, nursing career, I worked at the Grady Infectious Disease Clinic. Wow. So you have some good insights into the coronavirus pandemic. (laughs) That has been my major focus for the last uh, eight months, both because I'm an RN that uh, is fairly knowledgeable about infectious disease or has at least some knowledge about infectious disease, and also because um, of the different grassroots organizations I work in, many had a lot of questions, particularly when the pandemic first broke out. And uh, initially, I was trying to focus uh, with other people on the science of this. What does this mean? How is it transmitted? Uh, All of those questions. And of course, NNU, National Nurses United, uh, had uh, initiated letter writing to Congress and to uh, HHS back in, what, January, knowing that this pandemic would be coming here and that we were ill-prepared. And then, of course, as we all know, the situation has gone from bad to worse. Health outcomes among Southern states lagged behind the rest of the country even before the coronavirus pandemic. Can you talk about how Southerners, especially people of color and low-wage workers, have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19? I guess the major thing about the pandemic that uh, is important for the South is the way basically the federal government punted it to the states. Uh, The states in turn punted it to the counties, counties punted it to cities, cities punted it to individual hospitals, and now even individual schools in a struggle to get the kind of PPE or necessary equipment that they needed. All of that was essentially at the mercy of private corporations because there was uh, very little, well, there's almost no public health infrastructure to speak of in Georgia. So it's been a very uh, traumatic experience, I think, for, for Georgians and I would say probably for people throughout the South. We already came into this pandemic on unequal footing, particularly uh, Black Uh, Latinx and indigenous peoples, as well as immigrant people, uh, which is a a huge um, piece of this puzzle around the coronavirus that is not being addressed. I mean, the South came into this pandemic on unequal footing. We are the stroke belt. We are the uh, congestive heart failure belt. We are the diabetes belt. 
Georgia is like 49th in healthcare metrics, and that follows throughout southern states. Uh, usually Mississippi, as always, is at the bottom. But w- with the failure to expand Medicaid on top of the inequality that's inherent inside of Medicaid anyway, the crisis around the coronavirus has uh, really impacted particularly the rural South. In the last uh, six months, uh, two more rural hospitals are closing. One of them was an essential access hospital. Um, We had one of the largest outbreaks of the coronavirus in Doherty County, uh, which is uh, really at the heart of the Black Belt in Georgia around the city of Albany. Um, And, you know, it's very interesting because um, the narrative that's often promoted, particularly by Governor Kemp, but the narrative is is usually to blame the people themselves, right? Uh, Kemp was uh, the governor that closed, so-called closed the state of Georgia down on April 4th and opened it first on April 24th uh, with no viral control and no mask mandate opened nail salons, bowling alleys, etc. during this time. And of course, the virus continued to spread and the blame was placed on the people, particularly in the rural area, not recognizing that one of the other dynamics that exists in the rural South is, is that we have a disproportionate amount of prisons, detention centers, and nursing homes, because uh, a lot of the rural population is also elderly. And, you know, with no uh, resources, no solid resources really made available, either for testing, treatment, or uh, personal protective equipment, we had viral explosions uh, in, the, in the rural areas, and of course in the city too, in Atlanta. This is still going on, Jonathan, and one of the problems that we're, we're facing now is that the numbers are actually being hidden. They're not being reported. It's sort of this philosophy, if we don't talk about it, it just goes away. And of course, uh, again, that stems from our governor and is also reflected by number 45 as well. Um, Schools open early uh, in most southern states. Uh, Some of our schools opened in August. And a lot of that, or at least around the metro area, most of that was done by virtual learning. But In areas outside of the metro area, it was in person. And, you know, immediately there were viral cases. There are still cases going on inside of the schools, but they are now not being reported. And the school superintendents are using the excuse that it's a HIPAA violation. And I know you know what HIPAA is. It's a Patient Privacy Protection Act, which, of course, has absolutely nothing to do with providing the necessary data about how coronavirus is spreading. Just to layer one more piece on this is um, hospitals, or at least some of the hospitals, are not reporting the amount of coronavirus cases that they're experiencing in the hospitals. So here we are in the middle of a global pandemic with no uh, mass mandate, not a lot of social distancing, and the numbers are being hidden. So we're fighting uh, this uh, pandemic literally blindfolded and with two hands tied behind our back. So it's a very dangerous and very uh, worrisome uh, situation about how we get this virus under control when we essentially have a state's rights doctrine 
developing the narrative and the policy around coronavirus control. Are you at all surprised that this has been the outcome? What were your hopes when the pandemic started, and how has that matched up with reality on the ground? I mean, that's a really good question. I think that one of the uh, one of the things that's been shocking is the throwing of science under the bus. I think that's extremely dangerous. Well, clearly, as we've seen, costing lives in Georgia, about 7,500 lives. And then, of course, uh, around the country, over 230,000 deaths. Georgia has over 336,000 cases. But uh, the throwing of science under the bus was the thing that was most discouraging. And seeing public health officials essentially putting political considerations ahead of the truth of science is a situation that I think needs to be talked about a lot more. It's also exposed uh, what many people have spoken about, the dual pandemic of racism and the coronavirus, and of course, institutional racism, uh, institutional white supremacy is inherent in the way our healthcare system has been developed. Um, And it's been also, unfortunately, uh, part of the legacy of uh, when we did have a public healthcare system too, sort of a two-edged sword of public health. On the one hand, playing a role uh, to ensure that uh, workers were healthy enough to go to a job and and reproduce a working class. But on the other hand, uh, you know, a history that is uh, rooted in eugenics, also tied to how people in the South have come to have a distrust of many healthcare institutions because of that history. What's been fascinating to me has been to witness the southernization of the federal government. A lot of the things that we're seeing now on the federal level, not that they haven't existed before, but now it really seems to be taking the lead of the South on many different fronts. We've always known that the South leads the way, whether it's promoting racism, or quashing workers' rights, or denying people health care, but it's become very clearly defined during this pandemic. That is absolutely true. And, uh, As the saying goes, uh, Wall Street controls the South and the South controls the nation. Um, And so goes the South, so goes the nation. But I think you've raised something that's really uh, important and true is that the South also uh, is the lead in transforming society. The various markers that have historically uh, been dominant in Southern states have now, you know, spread throughout, throughout the country whether it's right-to-work laws or mass incarceration or various other aspects of Southern history that is now uh, playing out, particularly in the Midwest, I think. Um, And I think that has a lot to do with the role that healthcare plays in society, the way that this healthcare system, uh, the American healthcare system, is played in society. As I said before, playing a role to ensure a healthy working class. Well, you know, when the factories uh, put robots in where people used to be in Detroit and uh, where uh, people used to labor on the land and now it's done by mass tractors and artificial intelligence uh, technologies, um, you know, we see a decreasing need for human labor and the healthcare system begins to transform itself uh, into a system for itself um, to perpetuate 
profit or revenues um, rather than a system to support the health and well-being of the people. What was health care like in the U.S. when you first began practicing as a nurse versus how it is today? Well, there are several things that have happened incrementally, increasingly over my 40 years as an RN. One thing is You know, the United States set up a a system of commercial health insurance, right? I mean, commercial health insurers, I think it, I guess it started around in the 30s. Initially, Blue Cross Blue Shield, for example, health insurance was not for profit. And as a result of that, um, got a lot of tax benefits and whatnot. I, I mean, I remember working and, you know, your insurance was essentially covered by the job. And over a period of time, the worker had to pay more and more out of our own pockets into that uh, health insurance. It was in the 1990s. There was a, a massive move on the part of uh, particularly Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, to move from a not-for-profit to a for-profit. We actually sued here in Georgia uh our little band, Georgians for a Common Sense Health Plan at that time, sued uh, the state to try to get the revenues of this transition from Blue Cross Blue Shield from a not-for-profit to a for-profit because they've been given so many tax benefits over the years as a result of being a not-for-profit. You know, there was a whole period of time in the 90s where uh, these foundations were created called conversion foundations uh, as a result of these suits. But I guess that the the major difference or the two major differences is one, an increase of privatization more and more of the large county hospitals or the even the small town hospitals that were public or uh, community run or county run, uh, you know, have closed. Of course, we see that throughout the, the rural areas most profoundly. So the increase in privatization of healthcare institutions, uh, two, is the consolidation of the private insurance industry into about four or five, you know, dominant uh, health insurers with billions or perhaps even trillion dollars uh, worth of revenue. Uh, three is, you know, more and more of that has come out of the pocket of the worker, particularly um, these high deductible, so-called high deductible healthcare savings accounts. That was another big piece where the premiums would be reduced uh, for uh, for the employer, for the uh, worker, but the rub was in the amount of the deductible, which I don't know exactly what that is now, but almost all large uh, employers adopted that. And so you have deductibles of upwards from $1,500 to $6,000 for a, you know coverage for a family of four, these kinds of, of things. And then of course, the other side of that is the um, amount of jobs that no longer offer health insurance. Um, I mean, I came south, as I said, you know, about 40 years ago from Detroit, and having a job was usually a guarantee of having health insurance. That's no longer the case. The amount of employers that actually offer health insurance and the bulk of so much of that falls on the back of the worker has increased exponentially. So that's that's a really 
really good question. And there's a lot of nodal points in there about changes that have been made um, that are basically an extraction of wealth from the backs of uh, working and poor people into the hands of insurance companies and increasingly also into the hands of technology companies. And that's that's another uh, another change that we've seen uh, really exponentially since the introduction of electronic medical records back. Well, in the South, it was a little later, but I guess, you know, the early 2000s uh, when electronic medical records were introduced. And now, of course, tech companies are becoming a dominant force inside of the healthcare industry, period. Naomi Klein had an article in The Intercept recently describing what she calls a Screen New Deal. It's an initiative promoted by big tech companies that are pushing to transform physical distancing precautions implemented in the wake of the pandemic in order to save lives into a highly profitable, no-touch future. Why is that particularly disconcerting to you when it comes to healing and caring for patients? For the last few years, of various corporations, whether it's Apple or Microsoft or IBM or what have you, right, have been uh, courting uh, healthcare professionals and uh, hospitals and even uh, the insurance companies later, courting them trying to uh, increase their presence through using uh, mobile apps and or things like telehealth, right? Well, a lot of people were very... Um, you know, sort of reluctant, particularly as it went on on the path of, of telehealth. And once the pandemic hit, all of that evaporated within weeks, right? And now, theoretically, I can go to a bar in Georgia and get a drink. But I am in, if I have to see my doctor, unless it's really urgent, I should have a telehealth appointment, right? And one of the other concerns about telehealth, aside from the lack of human contact, which is absolutely essential to the health and well-being of people dealing with illness, is also, I think, a real strong move to substitute uh, institutions of telehealth for on-the-ground healthcare practitioners, particularly in underserved areas, again, like the rural South. And of course, this poses a whole nother set of issues, you know, especially when some m- many rural communities may not have internet access, but they can, you know, say, this is the direction we can take. Now, that's not to say that telehealth doesn't have a role, because it could have a terrific role. Say, for example, you know, you're in a rural area and, and you do actually have primary care physicians or nurse practitioners, PAs in the area, which is, which is the way it should be. Uh, and then somebody has perhaps, um, you know, a very developed, uh, difficult uh, medical diagnosis and they need to consult with a neurosurgeon who are not ubiquitous anyway, right? So, you know, if you had a primary care provider sitting down with a patient, uh, having a joint conference with a neurosurgeon, uh, you know, in another area, that could be a very positive use for telehealth. But as a substitute for human contact, as a substitute for touch, smell, hear, listen, um, all of the things you need to do when you're when you're dealing with people with illness, um, that's not the answer. So that's 
that's another uh, another thing that has come about. And lastly, uh, on this on this thought, and it also relates back to the history of eugenics too, is you know the institution of artificial intelligence in healthcare. And I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure about how all that's working, but I do know that AI is dependent upon algorithms and also dependent upon big data. And there is no place where you can get more big data from than in healthcare. And that's one of the moves that the technology companies are also trying to figure out is how to capture all of this big data and then apply algorithms to whatever commercial product they want to sell as a result of that. Um, And those algorithms inherently either consciously or unconsciously reflect the dominant, you know, ideology that this ruling elite has promoted inside of our society. And that's white supremacy. So, um, you know, this, this horrific eugenic history can be carried out. You know, the content can remain, uh, remain very much similar to the historic content, but the, the form is changing. Although not in all instances, as I mentioned before, the, the Irwin County Detention Center instance. So, um. Just to bring everyone up to speed, a nurse at the Irwin County Detention Center blew the whistle on a doctor accused of forcibly sterilizing immigrant women without their knowledge or consent. The horrific stories coming out of the detention center recalled the South's long and shameful history of forcibly sterilizing poor women, particularly women of color, and the disabled. Several years ago, I wrote about North Carolina's shameful eugenics program, which actually ramped up the forced sterilizations of poor black and white citizens even after the human rights crimes of the Holocaust had been exposed to the world. By 1974, 7,600 men, women, and children from every county in North Carolina had been forcibly sterilized. The massive sterilizations that took place, well, certainly North Carolina has that history, and I'm also thinking about Mississippi, too. It, 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 you know, if you look at that history, if you, if you sort of pull out that history, you have the history of slavery, where um, enslaved women were used as breeders. I mean, it's even hard to articulate that. It's hard to even say that, right? And then as um, sharecropping developed and then later, you know, at the end, after slavery and then you had sharecropping and then, uh, you know, as um, the international harvester came in and sharecropping was no longer a viable um, uh, way to sustain oneself, you had uh, another form of eugenics, which was this, the mass sterilizations. Like you said, in North Carolina, people that uh, were no longer considered needed for work. And, you know, that was, that was people like uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, who suffered the Mississippi appendectomy, uh, and then thousands and thousands of others. There were indigenous tribes. There was an indigenous tribe uh, that was sterilized to the point of extinction. Um so um, you know it's it, it's a frightening history. It's it's alive today at the Irwin County Detention Center um, in uh, South Georgia. Uh, you know we know that there were women uh, that were uh, sterilized. Uh, these were immigrant women, uh, mostly from Central America, seeking asylum as their crops had failed uh, from climate change and as. Uh, 
you know, ex- experiencing uh, legal and extra legal violence, uh, you know, in, in different countries in Central America. And they, they came uh, for asylum and ended up uh, in detention centers, uh, Stewart Detention Center, Irwin Detention Center. And, and uh, there was no precautions around the coronavirus. Um, and there were, uh, you know, many instances of uh, positive uh, coronavirus um, spread in those areas and in the communities surrounding those areas because, you know, the, the, the guards and the employees didn't have uh, PPE either. But recently, you know, it has also come to light that some of those women were sterilized uh, without their knowledge and without their consent. So what prompted you to finally join the movement for single-payer health care? A lot of stuff developed out of the civil rights movement, right? Certainly the passage of Medicare and Medicaid, and then as well on the heels of that, OSHA laws and various other uh, structural reforms. And I think it was 77, Ron Dellums uh, in California introduced a uh, plan for a national health service, similar to a, a, a British model, and later a little bit like a Cuban model. Um, and of course, that was red baited and, and didn't go anywhere. In 88, I think it was, uh, I was a nurse. I was also uh, doing a lot of work at the Georgia State Capitol uh, and eventually ran for a, a Georgia seat in the, in the Georgia House of Representatives and won. But right around that period of time, the article came out, I, I, I think it was the New England Journal of Medicine by uh, Himmelstein and Woolhandler about, you know, single payer. Right. If we can't look to to Cuba, maybe we can look to Canada. Uh, national health insurance, everybody in, nobody out. And uh, we had a, a little group uh, already uh, working on healthcare issues uh, in the disability community and and a number of other uh, issues that were coming up. And we grabbed onto this. And then in 1992, uh, our organization through my uh, position in the Georgia House introduced single-payer legislation for the state of Georgia at that time. Can you talk more about your single-payer bill and how it was received by the public? It was great, actually. Uh, we knew that it wasn't going to pass. I mean, we we were very clear about that. It was actually a resolution. But what the resolutions did was outline, was frame the kind of public insurance that we should have and how it should be used and how it could be directed and what global budgeting was and and what would be covered, which was everything. There would be no co-pays, no deductibles, all of that. So knowing that it wouldn't pass uh, on the one hand, but on the other hand, we got tremendous amount of press on that. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution actually wrote editorials supporting it. This is in 1992. Um, so the, the public response, we did a poll, and I think I think the numbers are, are pretty close to, well, I think the numbers are even better today, but back then, 65% of Georgians uh, were in support of it, and that was in 92. I'm, I'm sure the numbers today for improved and expanded Medicare for All are even higher than that. What role have Southerners like Fannie Lou Hamer and organizations like the Medical Committee for Civil Rights played in the fight to pass Medicare and Medicaid and other flashpoints in the launder struggle to establish health care as a human right? You know, when Medicaid and Medicare were passed in 65, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party 
of which Fannie Lou Hamer was a member, had a platform or was developing a platform. And they made it very clear that Medicaid would not be a solution for the South. But uh, Medicare for all, and indeed the the many of the authors of that legislation had always intended it to be extended to the entire population, was the answer because with Medicaid, you have additional restrictions and state control over how that actually how that actually works. And so, you know, historically, Southerners, uh, well, in particular, the revolutionary leaders of SNCC and the Civil Rights Movement and the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and all of that, you know, were pretty clear that Medicaid was not going to be a solution for the health care issues that, uh, that, that people in the South played. So that was, you know, that was a critical role. And as you mentioned, during Freedom Summer, Initially, there was an organization called the Medical Committee for Civil Rights, which was in New York. I think it, I can't remember what year it had actually started, 63, 64, something like that, where uh, doctors were boycotting uh, and were picketing the AMA because they excluded black physicians. Uh, you know, this is, this is not ancient history, right? They excluded black physicians. Um, and a call came up from SNCC, from the South, from doctors, from black doctors like Robert Smith and from Bob Moses and people like that uh, came up to the North saying, you know, we need healthcare practitioners down here to help us as we're being beaten in our uh, demonstrations and marches in order to achieve the vote and um, to end segregation and legal segregation in the South. And so uh, there was a response and that response came from you know, MCCR morphed into MCHR, the Medical Committee for Human Rights, and doctors and, and nurses uh, came down to Mississippi during Freedom Summer in uh, in 64. And that was a very, very important piece of our history and a very, very important lesson because here you had, you know, predominantly white privileged professionals coming down to the rural South that was in the midst of of a life and death struggle for civil rights. And how were those class and racial dynamics going to play out? There were obviously problems. There was obviously a huge amount of tension, but it also became clear that the leadership had to come from the community. And the providers that came down became very aware very quickly that it wasn't just their presence during these marches, which which functioned as a calming a calming force, a calming presence, as well as um, you know being able to to address any brutality from a medical perspective, but also also became clear that many, many people had never seen a doctor ever in their lives. And so issues of essential hypertension, which still uh, is is very prevalent within the Black community throughout the country, which many of us feel, you know, is a direct result of white supremacy and chronic stress that leads to chronic inflammation that can lead to hypertension and many other diseases. And so in that process, with a relationship with a wonderful doc named Jack Geiger and uh, Robert Smith and, and many, many others, created the Mississippi Mount Bayou Clinic. And in fact, 
I think that was one of the first, uh, you know, actually federal, you know, eventually became a part, partly federally funded clinic. At the time, it was a collaboration between the federal government, as far as resources go, and Tufts University. And then, of course, the community had much of the lead in that clinic. And they, they, they did things, uh, Jonathan, like uh, write prescriptions for food because people had been kicked off their land when they were uh, trying to achieve the vote and uh, were starving, didn't have any way to feed themselves. So they wrote prescriptions for food. Um, they created like tributaries of providers going out into the community to meet with and to treat people who uh, lived in, in more isolated rural areas. This was done in 1965, and we don't have any kind of public health care system that's really doing that today. What does that say? We have an opportunity right now with almost 250,000 Americans dying from COVID-19 to pass legislation that would enshrine health care as a public good. Yet even during a global pandemic, Republicans conspired to put our health into the hands of the free market, while Democrats proposed tinkering with incremental reforms like expanding on the Affordable Care Act, which we know has only further enriched the private health insurance industry at the expense of transformative reforms like Medicare for All. We saw Democrats squander their last big opportunity for sweeping social change during the Obama administration when they passed the ACA and decided to expand not Medicare, but Medicaid. Can you talk about how Southerners often pay the price for these insufficient measures? and how they continue to resist the status quo? All of the the major structural reforms, I think that this country has seen, certainly in the, in the 20th century, and we haven't experienced any structural reforms in the 21st century, have emanated uh, from the South. As the South goes, so goes the nation. But that also applies to the strategic leadership, I think, that uh, Southern workers um, have and, and continue to play. And, and there are many uh, revered institutions here that have continued to, uh, or, well, you know that, you're in North Carolina. <laughs> But, you know, whether it's Highlander Center or Project South or at Penn Center, uh, you know, various strong, deeply rooted institutions that continue to organize and to, to lead a struggle, you know, for, for justice and equality. And, and Medicare for All is a part of that. When Medicaid expansion, you know, with the uh, ACA, became an issue, you know, there were several things that that struck me about that. One was that with the growth of Medicaid over the years, there were like 74 million people on Medicaid, which speaks volumes about poverty. Because in the South, in order to be on Medicaid, you have to be pretty impoverished, right? Um, And so when when it became a question of expanding Medicaid, I thought, geez, you know, we should be farther along than that. I am certainly not opposed to Medicaid expansion. If that could happen immediately, let's do it. But also immediately, we need a Medicare for all because Medicaid is not equal. Um, it in many ways reinforces health disparities through low reimbursement. And it's also, you know, become uh, privatized in that it's all Medicaid plans, you know, where private uh, entities basically control the healthcare access of the people. And in doing that, can keep more money for the entity that's in that kind of control. We're also looking at some of that problem with Medicare now. I'm obviously over 65. We have seen that 
progressively Medicare has become more privatized with these Medicare Advantage plans, right? Which are just sort of HMOs on steroids. Um, and they're, they're private for profit uh, plans that Medicare contracts with whatever insurance company, you know, is, is out there, whether it's Cigna or Aetna or the Blues or United Healthcare, et cetera. So we have to talk about Medicare for all is an improved and expanded Medicare for all. Because one of the big, you know, many of the reasons why we're talking about Medicare for all is that it at least creates a level, a level playing field in order to be able to begin to address the horrific racial inequalities, uh, healthcare disparities uh, that exist. If we've got a big pot of publicly funded national health insurance program, we can direct some of that to the most underserved areas, right? And so that's why Medicare for All is also a health equity program. And it's a step. It is not by any stretch of the imagination, um, the end-all be-all to, to healthcare disparity, but it is certainly an, an easy step to take in that direction. And I also want to say and, and make it very, very clear that the private health insurance industry really is a parasite on the illness of people, right? And so, you know, with a Medicare for all, not a public option plan, which would ultimately uh, fall under its own weight, it eliminates the role of the commercial health insurance industry in healthcare, and you know you don't really need uh, an additional parasite when you're already sick, possibly from a parasite like hookworm in Lowndes County, Alabama today, which was eradicated in 1906 because it made the workers uh, in the textile uh, area in North Carolina lethargic. So the Rockefeller Foundation came in and eliminated hookworm. And now we see it coming back again in areas of the rural South. So history lives with us, Jonathan. History lives with us. I have been organizing around Medicare for All for several years now with an organization called Healthcare for All North Carolina, a chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. Even though there has been a huge shift in the state in terms of the number of people organizing to win Medicare for All, the vast majority of nonprofits and Democratic Party-leaning organizations continue to focus their energy on expanding Medicaid under the ACA, even though the Republican-controlled legislature has remained firmly set against it for the past 10 years. I am in favor, of course, of expanding Medicaid, and I know a lot of Medicare for All advocates are as well. Do you have any suggestions for how we can talk about the need for Medicaid expansion, but at the same time underscore how Medicare for All is really the reform that we need, not more poverty programs? You know, organizing and, and movement building is about building relationships, right? I mean, ultimately, so saying, yeah, okay, we do need to expand Medicaid, but we also need to pressure our congressmen to organize and mobilize for Medicare for All. I mean, and you're right. I mean, the mainstream Democratic Party, you know, is, is essentially sticking with what existed for the last 20 years. And, you know, if the pandemic showed us anything, it's that that doesn't work. And as you also know, you know, Medicaid was the compromise with the Dixiecrats uh, when Medicare was passed, right? So because of the um, lower reimbursements of Medicaid, you know, we had rural hospital closures over the years. Um, even when people, you know, when some folks uh, were able to have Medicaid, and we know that Medicaid uh, reimbursement, as I said, is is lower. 
it's difficult to say, yeah, okay, let's expand Medicaid. But people have to hold on to a vision of what's not only possible, but now is really necessary, right? I mean, Medicaid is not sufficient to cover. Well, one of the other things about Medicaid is you have to jump through hoops to figure out if you're eligible or ineligible. And if your income changes, you're out. And if your income goes up, you're out. Women, for example, who give birth are only covered by Medicaid in Georgia for, I think, up to three months after giving birth. Now, the child may be covered, but the woman's not. So there's this big push in the Georgia state legislature to expand Medicaid coverage for the mom, I think, for another six months. This is ridiculous. This is absurd. You know, what if mom gets sick at month seven? you know, or month eight. Let's be realistic, right, about what the weaknesses of the program are and how, the, you know, the way that Medicaid is structured now is actually uh, funneling a lot of public funds into private hands through these um, uh, Medicaid arrangements. Um, it, it, it's not a solution. Um, but, you know, um, whereas Medicare for All also uh you know, with a tr with traditional Medicare for all, allows you some some amount of choice. Now, the question of choice of like choosing your provider, which you usually can't do with Medicaid, because they're all either HMOs and or and or a lot of providers won't accept them because the reimbursement is low, and you know, and there's bias. Uh, obviously, a lot of racial racial bias among health professionals too. Um, uh, it. It is only a partial, it, it, it is not a solution to the extent of the healthcare crisis that we're actually experiencing. I mean, as long as healthcare is tied to employment, the situation is just going to continue to get worse, right? I mean, before the ACA, we had about 50 million people uninsured, and that's why the ACA was passed. So that number came down to about 27 or 37 million, uh, 27 to 30 million uninsured people. Uh, then you had the pandemic, right? And you have the pandemic and millions of people have been thrown out of work and millions more will not get a job back because while we've been, you know, <laughs> trying to, while this pandemic has been raging, these corporations have been saying, you know, maybe we don't need all these workers, you know, because they've had to accelerate the institution of technologies that were already uh, becoming a part of that process, right? So uh, there will be millions more. I don't know what the number of uninsured today in this in this country are. I would I would say it's probably close to at least forty million people. Um, uh, and and uh, many, you know, that's a big working class of people. That's people that, you know, may have had uh, decent incomes, um, as well as people that may have had little or no incomes. If we're going to divide up the uh, health care according to how much you make and or what color of your skin is, we will never have the health care that we need. And we see that even more clearly in a pandemic that is airborne. <laughs> Nobody is immune, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, even... Uh, I won't use the adjectives that are coming to mind. Even this guy in the White House 
got coronavirus, right? Um, and, and that's actually a little bit about what we understood in, in the very early days of public health with tuberculosis and various things like that, right? It is, you know, it is a community issue. Healthcare is an issue uh, of well-being for all of our people. And this, uh, this uh, ideology of go it yourself, uh, it's up to you, is not, uh, well, it's a John Wayne ideology of, of hyper-individualism, which uh, is uh, in contradiction to the way we actually live and the way we work and the way that we can't work. You've been very clear about the important role that workers play in forcing transformative social change. Can you talk a little bit more about how workers are organizing to bring issues like Medicare for All forward into the public debate? I have to say I'm, I'm very excited about the, the work in particular that, um, you know, both the Southern Movement Assembly, but especially the Southern Workers Assembly uh, has been doing uh, with the campaign, uh, Safe Jobs Saves Lives. You know, initially when businesses started to reopen, um, the demand coming from workers, particularly city workers in your state, you know, was, look, you know, if we're going to go back and we're, we're public workers, we're, we're in the public, whether it's sanitation services or municipal services or county services, whatever, you know, we're going to need the proper PPE, personal protective equipment. Of course, nurses, doctors, clinic assistants, radiology technicians, uh, housekeepers, janitors, the whole nine yards inside of the, the healthcare system need PPE. We've had thousands of healthcare workers die because they didn't have PPE. And, you know, NNU has been taking a real leadership role in terms of, of talking about that. And it's not safe for the patients too. And then the, the Safe Jobs Saves Lives campaign kind of sums up both the relationship between the fight for Medicare for all and the fight for job safety. And it's also related, if I may say, to the issue of defund the police, right? Because defunding the police means funding the resources that we actually need, or at least that's a piece of what it means. And so right now, Jonathan, with the schools opening, we are on the cusp of yet another crisis. I just got off the phone with a, with a friend of mine, let me put it like that, who has families that are teachers and um, their schools uh, have outbreaks of coronavirus um, and their teachers do, and the schools are not reporting it and the schools are still open. So, you know, teachers now too are part of this front line. And the last thing I want to say about you know, the pandemic and workers is this notion of essential workers, which I think actually it was Homeland Security that made the designations of essential workers. And of course, that was forcing uh, primarily people of color, often immigrant people into the meatpacking and poultry plants that you have to work, whether you have PPE or not. That's uh, totally egregious and has also led to uh, hot spots or outbreaks of coronavirus, again, in a lot of rural areas, certainly in Iowa and certainly in Georgia as well. The irony in all this is that, you know, essential worker, work is essential for the worker. 
We don't have the kind of public health care system where if you have to stay home and quarantine or if you're sick, A, you, you are fully compensated, your needs are met, food is delivered, you have somebody coming to your house to check on you, you uh, have, uh, you know, rent and mortgage forgiveness, you have all of these things that you need in order to survive so that you can regain your health, right? And uh, that's the kind of massive public health infrastructure that we could actually have. And a, and a poor country like Cuba actually does have a lot of that in place. And we've seen other countries, um, other countries that are capitalist, uh, even, even do that job a whole lot better. China, Singapore, Hong Kong, Vietnam has done an incredible job uh, of controlling uh, this virus because if things had to be shuttered, if things had to be closed, if people had to quarantine, they were not facing extreme poverty, starvation, eviction, and uh, job loss, which is, which is what the American worker faces. What role do you think the South can and must play going forward in the Medicare for All movement? I think the role we're playing. I think we need to come together as much as possible throughout the South and raise our voices for improved and expanded Medicare for All. I think that improved and expanded Medicare for All, we need to bring that in to the existing social movements, not silo it to a handful of healthcare activists and, and dedicated folks, many of whom are also working in the, in the healthcare field. Uh, in order to do that, we need to acknowledge, address, and correct the eugenic history and the healthcare disparity uh, that still exists today, and you know, and realize that uh, in order to have any kind of credibility within a broader uh, social movement. And I, I am absolutely confident that Southern folks, Southern working people, are doing that. It is happening and it just needs, it needs to continue. We need to put our heads together. We need to share information. We need to build new relationships. We need to, um, understand why many folks, you know, support just immediate Medicaid expansion. And most of that just comes from extreme pressure from the mainstream Democratic Party as opposed to, uh, you know, informed knowledge about what is actually possible. That's that's the other piece of this pie, right? We know that improved and expanded Medicare for All will actually save money, save lives, and, and produce a, a much healthier population. So I think in some ways, like the Medical Committee for Human Rights built relationships with the people on the ground and were willing and prepared to take leadership from the people on the ground, I think a lot of us in the South understand that that's the only way change really occurs, is from the bottom up. And that, I think, is a lesson that we can share with the whole country and build those kind of relationships with respect with acknowledgement of the institutional racism that exists within historically, presently, and how improved Medicare for all can be a part of that solution, not an end-all be-all, but a part of that, that solution. Rita Valenti was a nurse for 40 years and is a longtime single-payer advocate with healthcare now. 
Music for Southern Discomfort was recorded by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jonathan Michaels.